listening to the Film Monsters Podcast with me and Ray. (laughs) Well, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Film Monsters Podcast. I'm Nate. And I am... The most debonair Ray. And you know why you're so debonair, Ray? It's awards <laughs> it's award season. We're in it our tu- we're season. in our tuxedos. You can't you guys can't see us like last week when we were in our plague plague doctors outfits. This week we are in full tuxedos and get ups because the Oscar nominations have been announced. And Ray, I guess I want to start this episode by asking you like do you really care about the Oscars, or is it more just like a fun thing for you to see what what Hollywood thinks is deserving of of a major award? It's kind of a guilty pleasure. I'm not gonna lie. Um, I I, do, I agree. <laughs> I do like enjoy it because I'm like this is a bit of a guilty pleasure. Well, that that's kind of where I land. I do believe it's a guilty pleasure, you know. But but at the same time, like I mean, yeah, we can sit here and complain about Hollywood, but like. Some years they get it right. I agree with what you're saying. I think some years they do get it right. And the the years that I get really excited for are when the little films that I feel like not a lot of people talk about get more recognition. Because like we're going to talk about when we discuss some of the nominations, Everything Everywhere All at Once obviously got a lot of recognition. And that was big because it was an A24 movie that made oh, like a ton of money in the box office. I think it was the highest grossing A24 film. But knowing that it's going to be really praised at the Academy Awards, and even if it doesn't win all the awards that it's nominated for, how many more people are going to watch that movie now because it's been pro- uh, broadcasted on national television? I mean, that's kind of what happened with Parasite and Coda, you know, the, these smaller movies that got a bunch of recognition after the oscars yes it's so cool when that happens honestly the only thing i want to complain about a little bit and i don't know what you feel like ray but i wish they'd go back to just having a host just run on stage and talk <laughs> well like last i remember last year where or I'm, I'm not sure if it was last year but it was the year where they had like amy schumer and what's her face oh it was just yeah cringe. it was horrible it was just cringy when ricky gervais is up there because he just makes fun of everyone <laughs> yeah Ricky is funny. He is. But like, yeah, obviously I think we both have a guilty pleasure where we enjoy watching it. But I think we can both say for the most part, it's a popularity contest. I mean, like you, there are certain movies like the term Oscar bait wouldn't exist if that wasn't a real thing where like film directors are like, I'm going to make this movie and I know it's going to get nominated for Academy Award because this is what people love. Like I think about one of the nominations we're going to talk about today is a movie that I feel like didn't get any recognition whatsoever, barely promoted, and it's like, oh, it's a period piece drama. Of course it's going to get nominated. I'm curious because I'm worried it's one that I really liked. <laughs> no, it's one I guarantee you probably haven't even heard of. Because okay. like until I saw it, I was like, I don't even know what the fuck this is. Like I hadn't even heard of it at all. I'll just spoil it really quickly. It's the movie that Bill Nye was nominated for Best Actor. It's called like Living. Oh yeah, I saw that his nomination, and I was like, what is that? <laughs> yeah, similarly to another one we'll talk about, but let's just get into it. So we're not going to cover every single category, but I've got it pulled up here. So Ray, I'm going to run through some of the categories that I know you and I are both going to want to talk about a little bit. Um, so the first one is going to be Best Actor, and the nominees are 
Austin Butler for Elvis, Colin Farrell for Banshees of Inishirin, Brendan Fraser for The Whale, Paul Mescal for After Sun, and Bill Nye for Living. I have seen all of these movies except for Living. Um, I I think I've only seen like two of them actually. You saw The Whale and Banshees of Inishirin, but I I think you know with everything said about Brendan Fraser this year, and even like me not loving that movie but enjoying it. I can't deny that he gave an amazing performance. I think you're right there with me on that one for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, the thing about Brendan Fraser is that I was talking to my brother about this the other night because he was like, what is up with this whole Brendan Fraser like renaissance? And then I told him, I think we, especially in the U.S., have this like, I don't know, we put celebrities in these pedestals. So, you know... We see all these celebrities and we, we, we think of them as these like high class, unreachable people. But Brendan Fraser is like such a nice dude and such a man of the people that people are just excited to see like a genuinely nice person being awarded this way. Uh, similarly to how I feel about another person in this category, uh, Colin Farrell. Yeah, Colin Farrell is another one that um, well deserved. I feel like my money is on either. Well, my desire is on one of those two. I want, I want Brendan Fraser to get it, but I wouldn't complain if Colin Farrell got it. Well, I will say right now, I praised it in our episode, but I was very happy when Paul Mescal got nominated for After Sun, because I didn't even think that movie was going to get talked about. And as you remember, Ray, that was my number three movie of the year, uh, and I adored it. I thought his performance was brilliant. And I'm really glad to see that he got the nomination, even though that I I don't I don't think he's gonna win. Uh, I realistically think, and I know you're not gonna like this opinion, but I think Austin Butler's gonna win for Elvis. No, I think so too. I mean, like I said, I want Brendan Fraser, but I feel like Hollywood likes their you know their their actors portraying a real life character. Well, and I watched Elvis today. Well, like well, I started it last night and I finished it today. Um, and the movie sucks. Like, it's terrible. But Austin Butler is really committed to the performance, and he's really fantastic in it. I still don't think he's better than Colin Farrell, Paul Mescal, or Brendan Fraser, though. So, I don't know. I think, my unfortunately, I don't think Brendan Fraser is going to win either way. I think if they go with a safe pick, they're going to pick Austin Butler. And if they pick something a little more out of the norm... It's going to be Colin Farrell. And the Golden Globes are typically a pretty good indication. And Colin Farrell won the Golden Globe, and so did Austin Butler. So I, it'll be interesting. But I, but I don't know. We'll see when it comes up. So I'm going to lock in my answer, unfortunately, as Austin Butler. And, and Ray, what is your locked-in answer? I'm going to lock it in on Brendan Fraser. Awesome. And I honestly, I'd love to see his acceptance speech. So that's perfect. So next we're going to go to actor in a supporting role, which I think we both can agree on who's going to win this. But you have Brendan Gleeson for Banshees of Inishirin, Brian Tyree Henry for Causeway, another shout out for a movie that Nate loved that no one talked about, Judd Hirsch for The Fablemans, Barry Keoghan for The Banshees of Inishirin, and Ki-Huey Kwan for Everything Everywhere All at Once. I have seen every single one of these movies and i can tell you without a doubt kiway kwan deserves it bar none if i was gonna pick a back seat to that it would be brian tyree henry because his performance was really nuanced and beautiful but i think we could all step behind that kiway kwan is a wonderful human being that deserves it completely he deserves all the good things in the world 
Yeah, and I honestly think, like, I watched his tweet that he, uh, recently, which he's still not verified on Twitter, which, how the fuck has that happened? But he said, now I can go everywhere and say, I'm Oscar-nominated actor Kiwe Kwan. I love that man so much. <laughs> and I'm just like, he's, he's one of us. He really is. He's just one of us. He's like, how is this even happening? And truly, like... If if I had to if I had to say this completely, he was my favorite performance from last year, without a doubt. He was incredible, and the thing that struck me the most about his performance is that like he is playing like different characters. That's the thing that was so nuanced about his performance. It's not this like just one dimensional character. There's so many layers to the different versions of himself that he plays in that movie. That I mean. Yeah, no, I I want him to get the Oscar so bad. He's he's my lock. My lock is Kiwe Kwan. I don't I don't even think there's another correct answer. No, that's that's the answer. Well, perfect. So we'll move on to the next category, which is best actress, and I have seen all of these movies as well. You have Kate Blanchett for Tar, Anna de Armas for Blonde, Andrea Riseborough for Two Leslie. Michelle Williams for The Fablemans, and Michelle Yeoh for Everything Everywhere All at Once. So, Ray, what's your pick for this one? This one's tough because, like, I have my hope. So, like, my pick is Michelle Yeoh. And then it would be cool to see, like, a, an upset like Andrea Riseborough because I feel like she does not get the recognition she deserves. And let me tell you, that movie is fantastic. Um, I don't think it's going to be her, though. I think it's between Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh but I am going to um, dream for Michelle Yeoh. I agree with you, but I am going to actually have to lock in Kate Blanchett. I did not love Tar. I thought it was a very average movie. Uh, there are moments of brilliance in it, but for the most part, it was pretty whatever. But Kate Blanchett's performance is amazing. And what do we know about the Academy? They love Kate Blanchett. <laughs> and yeah, I, they do. As much as I want Michelle Yeoh to win, and I think that she deserves it because she's not talked about enough, I think they're going to give it to Kate Blanchett. And I really quickly wanted to bring up, because, Ray, I know you haven't seen this movie yet, but how fascinating is it that in the same year, Anna de Armas got nominated for Best Actress and Worst Actress at the Razzies? She got nominated for Worst Actress, too? Yes, she did. She got a nomination for both. So she got a nomination for Worst Actress at the Razzies and for Best Actress at the Academy Awards. That's super weird. Yeah, but the Razzies are under some heat right now because they they nominated that 12-year-old girl from Firestarter. Oh, no. Uh, I don't I don't know how much tact uh, there is in nominating a 12-year-old girl for Worst Actress. And I'm not going to say she gave a great performance, but, like, that's kind of sadistic. Yeah, that's on another <laughs> level. Um, but Ana de Armas, that movie sucks really bad, and I understand all of the scrutiny that it's getting. Her performance is still great. You can tell that she cares about the material. I personally love Ana de Armas. I think she's a really talented actress. I think she's a passionate actress. It just sucks that she gets casted in so many bad properties. But it's cool to see her getting some recognition, although I don't think this is the movie that she should be recognized for. It should have been 2049. Yeah. <laughs> so my lock-in is Kate Blanchett. And Ray's lock in is Michelle Yeoh, which, which I'm well aware that I'll, which I'm aware that I'll probably be wrong on a lot of these, but I, I I choose to dream. Well, don't get me wrong. My hopeful is Michelle Yeoh. Also, if she does win, Michelle Williams gave a brilliant performance in The Fablemans as well. So, really, just talented actresses all throughout. It's a really good category. So next up is supporting actress, and you have 
Angela Bassett for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Hong Chow for The Whale, Carrie Condon for Banshees of Inishirin, Jamie Lee Curtis for Everything Everywhere All at Once, and I'm probably going to butcher her last name, but Stephanie Hugh for Everything Everywhere All at Once. That's tough because if e I want either one of the girls from Everything Everywhere All at Once to win. Especially, could you imagine JLC taking away an Oscar? I would love that so much. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, honestly, with how the Golden Globes went, and as much as I can't stand Marvel movies getting nominated, Angela Bassett is an incredible actress, and she won for the she won the Golden Globe for Black Panther. I have a feeling it's probably going to get carried over, even though I have not seen that movie, and I could say the other four women on this list gave outstanding performances. Uh, I think. Of the two in Everything Everywhere All at Once, I would probably give it to Stephanie Hugh because her performance was really versatile. Even though I did love, um, I did love Jamie Lee Curtis, and I did find out today that she based that character off of a stock footage image of an IRS representative. That makes me love that performance even more now. Yeah, and as much as like The Whale wasn't my favorite movie, Hong Chow was brilliant. I would personally, if I. If I had it my way, I would give it to Jamie Lee Curtis. I know you would. She's done the work, man. She's done the work. She more than deserves it. Yes, I, I can I can get behind it. I'm going to say, though, unfortunately, if I'm trying to guess for accuracy, my lock-in is going to be Angela Bassett. Yeah, same. I, I, I personally, like, I haven't seen the new Black Panther. I am just kind of tired of Marvel movies in general. It's getting to the point where I'm officially at burnout mode. I'll see it probably eventually. I still think it's funny that it gets nominated for best or for any sort of award whatsoever, but whatever. Uh, Angela Bassett's a wonderful human being who's a talented actress. If she wins, I'm not going to be upset. Right. No, I'm, I'm with you. So next, Ray, is a category that I think we both want to talk about, and that is Best Animated Feature Film. And we have Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, the Sea Beast and Turning Red. Which I actually have seen all of these. I have seen all of them except for The Sea Beast, but I know it's on Netflix and I uh, I, I, I don't know. It's I, I, I'm going to watch it eventually. It's a good time. It's a fun movie. So what's going to be your pick? So obviously I want Marcel, but I know it's probably going to be Pinocchio. Which is fine because we both love Guillermo del Toro on this podcast. Yeah. I'm fine with it. I just I just wanted to see Marcel the Shell take it. I want to. I genuinely loved Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Um, it, it's a beautiful movie. I think Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is a beautifully animated film. I didn't love it as much, but honestly, if it's a sleeper, give it to Puss in Boots, baby. <laughs> that would be like. Would you even? What you wouldn't even? You wouldn't even be mad though. Don't even tell me that you'd be mad because I would like be clapping in my seat. Oh, well, that's the thing. We're going for accuracy. Like, that movie is awesome, and it deserves it completely. Um, so I wouldn't be mad about it either. But it's just, again, the Golden Gloves, Guillermo took it, so I'm going to lock him in. You know what? I'm going to throw you a curveball on this one. I'm going to lock in Marcel. I'm going to say they're going to take a curveball and that it's going to be Marcel the Shell with shoes on. So that's my lock. And then if we're both upset and they give it to fucking Turning Red, I'm going to be so mad. 
<laughs> that was that was the most mid-tier Disney movie I've ever watched. I was so disappointed by it. It wasn't like bad, but like compared to the other movies on this list, like I've heard the Sea Beast is really great. I just haven't seen it. It's yeah, no, it, it is great. So that, I'm gonna push that one up to the top of my list. So that's animated feature film. So let's talk about cinematography. Something. Ray and I both uh, really appreciate. So first up, we have All Quiet on the Western Front. Next up, and Ray, I did not know this until I looked online. Did you know that Alejandro Inarritu made a movie last year? What? It's called Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, and it's nominated for Best Cinematography. I had no clue he made a movie. Yeah, see, I had no idea either, and it's like 180 minutes long. Elvis is nominated, Empire of Light, Roger Deakins is nominated, and Tar is nominated. Um, Personally, I've seen three of the five films. Deakins got his Oscar for 2049. No one talked about Empire of Light other than Nate Beasley. (laughs) Um, But uh, my, my vote for this one... I loved the cinematography in All Quiet on the Western Front, but if I'm going to be realistic, I think Tar's going to win. I haven't seen any of them. Um, yes, you have. You've seen All Quiet on the Western Front. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, I haven't seen any of the other ones. No, you haven't seen any of the other ones. Yeah, no, I've only seen All Quiet on the Western Front. So that's all I have to base myself on. Um, I'm going to dream for All Quiet. I'm going to dream for All Quiet on the Western Front. Mostly because it's the only one I've seen. <laughs> yes, uh, I I think that that's not a bad choice because I think All Quiet on the Western Front was really well shot. But I think Tar, it's got to get some award somewhere. So we're going to skip over to the next category, which I'm excited to discuss. Best Director. We have Martin McDonough for Banshees of Inisherin, The Daniels for Everything Everywhere All at Once, Spielberg for The Fablemans, Todd Field for Tar, and Ruben Osland for Triangle of Sadness. I have seen all of these movies. But, Ray, I would like you to weigh in first. You know I'm going to go for my, for my boys, the Daniels. Now, give me your reasoning behind it. I love the Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything more to it than that? I think... So, my thing about the Daniels is... I feel like they have done something this year... Or last year, I should say. Unheard of for A24... For weird movies all around. I mean, their first movie was about a farting corpse. Yeah. Uh, so I think, honestly, I think it comes down to, because they won the Critics' Choice Awards. I think they won the BAFTAs, too. So, I mean, the Daniels have been on pretty good track. I know that they didn't win the Golden Gloves, but I don't know. It's, it's hard, because I want to see the Daniels take it, just because I think it would be the biggest, like, it would be like another parasite moment. So I think I think the Daniels are going to win. I I really do. I think that the, the the impact that this film had on cinema this year is something that you and I I think have been hoping for for a really long time. I think Parasite started that trend, but this movie is like the weird kind of movie we both have wanted to be successful for a really long time. I asked one of my coworkers. I asked one of my coworkers if I told you um, that that movie got an Oscar nomination, would you believe me? He's like, no. No, would you believe me if I told you you got 11 nominations? And he's like, no. I was like, well, it did. (laughs) Well, my thoughts are this, and you can disagree or disagree. 
I think the Daniels probably will win it. I think if the Oscars play it safe, they'll give it to Spielberg. And I think if they don't want to go full full stop crazy, they'll give it to Martin McDonough Yeah, for Banshees. Yeah, I can see that. But I think because the Daniels have never gotten anything, there's a lot of people who are arguing because Spielberg's getting older and he might not have as many more opportunities to get it that they'd give it to him, but I don't think he deserves it over the Daniels. Well, and I, it's also one of those situations where you know it's time to shine on on different filmmakers exactly so i want to do one more category before we're done and that is best picture so i'm going to give you all of the best picture categories so we've got all quiet on the western front avatar 2 electric boogaloo the banshees of the banshees of inishirin elvis everything everywhere all at once the fablemans tar uh tom cruise shoots people boom boom movie Triangle of Sadness and Women Talking, which I don't... Women Talking barely got a release until this year. How did anyone even see it? Um, my vote for this one is I think Everything Everywhere All at Once is going to pull the surprise just like Parasite. Mm. See, man, I don't know. I'm kind of leading the Banshees on this one. Well, I, and I, I can definitely see either one of them. I think it's... I I think here's this. There's some people who have tried to, tried to make an argument for Top Gun... I think it's stupid. There's literally been no recognition thrown towards that movie at all, other than like people really liked it, which is fine. But like as far as awards recognition goes, no one's even talked about that winning. Uh, I think that everything, everywhere, all at once is gonna win. I think it's the same thing that I just said. If the Academy plays it safe, they give it to the Fablemans. They want to be a little bit more on the on the edge. They'll give it to Banshees. And if they really want to do the world some justice, they'll give it to everything, everywhere, all at once. Everything Everywhere All at Once did create a phenomenon, basically. It did. It changed the, it changed the scope of cinema. Also, um, the movie managed to pull people spending $35 on a rock with googly eyes. Yeah. <laughs> that is... I saw that this morning and I laughed so hard. I love it. <laughs> I do too. I was honestly a little disappointed because I saw the... Um, I saw the like post for it on a 24 story. And I was like, tell me it's going to be one of those special edition Blu-rays. And then I was like, mm, unfortunately it's not. It's just a rock. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's hilarious. And I'm glad. And I think that's, you know, broadly speaking, that is, uh, that's a, that's a good, um, that that's a good amount of categories that we covered, but I'm excited. I think Ray, if you want to try it before it comes out, maybe you and I can do, the paper versions of those and we can post them on the instagram so people can see what we voted for in every category yeah we could do that that'd be fun and that way we can uh see who got more right when it's over <laughs> but that is our oscar predictions and i thought that was a lot of fun ray i always enjoy talking about those things with you but i think we want to talk about uh our topic today which ray i want to segue over to you because i feel like We've been doing this podcast for what? This is like the 37th episode. And I think you've been waiting for this, my friend. I think this is this is your time to shine. So why don't you give why don't you give the the good people at home a little bit of background as to what we're gonna be talking about today? For those who follow me on, on the Instagrams, it's no surprise that I am a big fan of film music, I guess I I should say. because um, I would extend it not just to scores but also soundtracks. I don't know. I guess my my 
when I was little, I used to always think to myself, who would listen to this? You know, who would listen to this? This is such boring music, you know? And, but obviously I would always recognize the tunes. I would always recognize the little cues from all these different movies. Clearly it was doing an impact to me, even though I didn't really appreciate it. And then um, my older brother, he started like really drilling soundtracks at home. Like we would save our lunch money and then we would buy all these soundtracks. And we, oddly enough, bought this, <laughs> oddly enough, we bought the Top Gun soundtrack on cassette. We bought Godzilla, Space Jam. Um, and eventually we started delving into actual film scores like titanic was one of the first ones we did so the the way how it started for me for for scores is you know growing up in a in a very um christian household my parents would ask of us they weren't like forceful about it but they would ask us to like if on sundays we can keep the entertainment more quote-unquote wholesome so like we would watch like Disney movies or we would watch like very tame uh, movies and for music because we got sick of listening to like you know hymnals and stuff like that we started you know using film scores like oh hey it's okay this is classical music type of thing and then eventually just became something I love and at first if I'm being honest when I picked up film scores at first it started out of a fandom for the films because I was like, oh, this is like the ultimate piece of merchandise for a film. You know, you get the, the 12 inches of the artwork with some cool variant and you can display it. And then I started really delving into the music and I've been hooked on ever since. And yeah, I try to make a point to post as often as possible my, my soundtrack collection. And you know what? It's... Uh... It's great to hear you tell that story that way and how that connects with you because I always hear you talk about how much you love film scores, but to get that level of context makes it all the more awesome that you're so passionate about it. Um, my love for film scores sort of just came with the fact that like I loved movies and I started um, I started getting more into the music in the movies probably not until like late high school. Um, but I really started paying a lot more attention to the scores and what goes into the scores. And now as a vinyl collector, which I started collecting vinyl, I want to say my freshman year of college was when I started that. That's when I got my first record player, my, um, right after I got out of high school and collecting scores. Like originally I was like, Oh man, I want to get like Indiana Jones and star Wars and like all the, all the greats, like the things that you think about when, when you, yeah. When you talk about like things that were representative of your childhood, that's what you want to get. I'll never forget when I bought the temple of doom score and I was so happy when I got it the first time. And I was so thrilled now in my adult life, I feel like I'm similar to you where like if a big score comes up, I'm excited to get it. But like, I'm definitely more for the obscure art house movies that we really like, or like the fun horror comedies or those type of movies that have really amazing scores. And I focus a lot heavier on owning those because I find them even more fun to revisit. Well, and I feel like because those movies aren't as popular, there is more like, there's more levels of care put to them. I mean, I feel like this is a good time to segue before we jumped into the scores. Maybe we can jump real quick into some of these like boutiques that have come out of the woodworks to release some beautiful stuff. 
Um, the the more obvious answer is Mondo. You know, you can tell that Mondo and and Death Waltz because they're basically like the same company. Mondo and Death Waltz put so much care, not just into the music, but like the packaging. Um, they put the OV strips. They do cool variants. They you know, hire out local and independent artists to rec recreate or reimagine some of the artwork for some of these movies. And because some of the movies that they take more liberties with are these independent movies, you get to see, like, interpretations of other people's art into, you know, being tied to this film. Um, I actually saw, I don't know if you read the story, but I saw a really cool story with the artwork for Smile for the score coming out for smile from mondo i didn't get to read the story but the artwork is amazing well so the so the composer uh well i mean the artist that did the artwork he obviously did the smiley face and then he told his daughter hey you want to draw some smiles for me and she started drawing creepy smiles and then he was like oh he was just going to use the daughter's um images as inspiration and when he saw the drawings of this like seven-year-old girl he was like no i gotta leave it like this that is so amazing just, and he just touched it up, and that's the artwork. So, like, he designed the jacket, and then the all the creepy, like, toothy smiles in the inner sleeves that you can see on the mock-ups. That was his seven-year-old daughter that drew them, and he was so, like, impressed by them. by Because he's like, they look like a child drew them, but they also look, like, legitimately creepy. Yes, 100%. And that's that really kind of accompanies the overall mood and tone of that movie. And honestly, since I've ordered it, I cannot wait to get that score right so like you have a companies like like mondo that you can tell they put care into what they're doing so it it gives you more of a, an incentive to to pick these up on physical format exactly and i think that's something that you and i can both agree with is like despite the great music i think we're both suckers for great packaging and also like i think you mentioned this on the dead wax podcast episode you were on but i have a lot of respect when mondo and uh mondo and like waxwork and all these record labels that we really like um take the time to make the variants match yes like i really like my records a lot more when they uh when they match the like either the cover artwork or like any of that stuff i always get way more excited and sure there's some exceptions where like they don't match whatsoever but i think i like it a lot more when they do match it feels more fun to show other people for sure and like just another few boutiques that i wanted to give a shout out to before we we jumped into the main topic you obviously mentioned waxwork i'm big fan of waxwork i signed up for their um subscription this year that i'm so excited for um another one that's like really great they don't go into that detail as much as waxwork and and mondo but i don't know if you've ever heard of terror vision terror vision does a lot of like low budget B movies, um, so they did the they did the score for Waxwork, the movie Waxwork. They did the score for um, Pontypool. They, um, what was the other one that they did recently? They did Elves, which is like some horror Christmas B movie. So they've done a lot of really. They did Chud too. So like their whole thing is that they do like really like B movies from like the eighties. Um, they did The Gate. That's another one that they did. And yeah, they're called Terror Vision, and they, they just press these, like, really obscure horror movies. And that's another thing that I wanted to, you know, mention about film scores. 
Um, sometimes I've heard the scores before the movie, and it made me immediately want to go check out the movie. And that's that's awesome too when you can get hyped up about just seeing a score, and and really pumping yourself up and and getting excited for watching the movie just because of that. Um, so yeah, I I don't really have a structure for this episode because I feel like it's something that we both love. But do you want to kick us off, Ray, and and talk about uh, talk about a score? that you really want people to know about or just like one that's one that's important to you. I know there's a million, but I figured we can kind of just hop back and forth and talk about some of them and maybe get like, obviously, cause you know, a lot of these movies, I'm assuming we've talked about the movies in great detail, but we can discuss a little bit about what the score means to us. And like, you know, looking at it even separate from the movie as a whole. So the one that I wanted to kick off things with, um, and people laugh sometimes when I tell them about it, but I legitimately love the score. This is a big budget movie, so this is not an obscure movie. And But the reason why this one, it's so important to me is because, like I said, my brother and I used to save our lunch money and we would buy these um, soundtracks and scores on cassette. Um, one of the first ones we ever did, if not the first one, was um, James Horner's Titanic. And the, the thing about um, Titanic... Um, so eventually when they got pressed by Music on Vinyl, by the way, who do great work uh, music on vinyl is a little bit more standard when it comes to packaging but their records always sound great they always look great and they're always like heavyweight 180 gram um, the artwork for it tends to for music on vinyl they tend to stick on the safe side of just using the regular movie art but they still look great uh, regardless but when this one came out on vinyl i was so excited because i feel like this is kind of what started my curiosity for this uh, genre of music. You know, being able to... I would actually put the James Horner soundtrack and put my headphones on and I would listen to the score for this and for Back to Back to the Titanic, which I have yet to pick up. Um, and yeah, this is just one of those that I, I started listening to with my brother. Uh, my brother, he likes a lot of more classical sounding music. He... Him and I got into some similar bands, but he definitely gravitated more towards like that really classy style of music. So he introduced me to a lot of this stuff. And James Horner's Titanic was one of the very first ones that that really got me hooked onto the, into the whole film music stuff. And like I said, if you ever come across that, like Music on Vinyl did a great job with it. That's awesome. And I love the story behind that, that record in particular because I know that that's really like a – a gateway record for you, which is, which is really cool. Um, so I get, I can start off with mine. Uh, and I actually don't own a physical copy of this record, but it is one of the first film scores that got me into caring about film scores. And that's the Mark Mothersbaugh score to the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. But this is, that's, I've talked about Sigur Ross and the soundtrack and how important the soundtrack was, but I started really paying attention to the score, and I really love how minimalist it is. I, I, I think that it really accompanies the tone of the film really well. And it's a soundtrack that I find myself revisiting a lot because it's really easy to listen to. And I think Mark Mothersbaugh is one of those that, like, if you're talking about pinnacle-tier um, composers, he's he would definitely be up there. He's worked with so many incredible people throughout his career. But that's one of his most memorable, in my opinion, and definitely a gateway 
film for me or film score for me that I find myself playing on Spotify over and over again. But I, I know they did a pressing for it a while ago, but I definitely need to pick one up. I, I was that was one of the ones that I was in line at the at record store day for that for that record. Yeah, a hundred percent. So yeah, uh, Life Aquatic would be up there for me. What would be another one for you? So I'm I'm pulling up my list here because I as as music nerds go, we we have our discogs. Um, you know, I'm I'm gonna give a shout out to um. So you mentioned earlier, and I want to give them a shout out to the the boys, the those those handsome boys over at Dead Wax for having me come into their uh, podcast. Um, a couple of weeks ago and they were kind enough to kind of revolve the topic around composers. Um, so one that came to mind that came into conversation there and this was probably one of my first scores on vinyl and this is this is another basic answer but it's Hans Zimmer's Inception. Yes, yeah, a movie that I can't stand but I can tell you that the score is amazing. <laughs> I I do love the score to that movie a lot. It's a great score, and I remember me buying that score before I even had a turntable, just because I loved it so much, and I came across it, and, you know, this is like when I had started collecting, like, almost 11 years ago. Um, I still didn't even have a, a turntable, but I was just like, I know I love this, and I'll eventually buy a turntable, so I want to pick this up. And Hans Zimmer is great, like, I think feel like a lot of people don't really like understand the level of impact that Hans Zimmer has had. I feel like Hans Zimmer will be looked at as a John Williams in the future. Oh, 100%. I think he uh, personally I think he's already there. I uh, like people can argue what they want, but he's worked on so many iconic movies. I think you could already say he's there. Oh, for sure. I well I would say he is, but I know some people will be like no. But yeah, like I mentioned uh, on one of their podcasts that he started out as like as the keyboardist for like that band that plays "Video Kill the Radio Star." That is so funny, honestly. Uh, but but awesome. And look at where his career has gone from that point. Yeah, he's he's picked up two Oscars in his time composing, um, and I just love Hans Zimmer. I feel like I could pinpoint anything that Hans Zimmer has done, and I would be like all over it. But it it kind of but it kind of started with Inception for me. Yeah, that's really cool, honestly. And uh, I you, all whenever you have a story like that, it always brings me a smile to my face because it just goes to show like the impact of movies and music and how you know movies a lot of movies they just wouldn't exist without the amazing scores that are attached. They wouldn't be as impactful. And I feel like the two are one, and it's cool to see how the score can independently affect you on top of the movie as well. Also, I feel like with the Inception score specifically, Hans Zimmer did this thing where now for a, for a time there, everybody wanted to do use those like wah sound or whatever you want to call it. It became such a staple of like every like action thriller that like, yeah, but now, but now if you try to do it, uh, Christopher Nolan shows up on your doorstep with a service paper. Cause you're sued. <laughs> He's like you've been served. <laughs> yeah, pretty no, much. that's a, that's a good choice. I figured uh, we'd get some Christopher Nolan for you. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, I want to mention a score that uh, will be near and dear to your heart, sir, because it has an attachment to Utah. And this is a score that is a little bit unconventional comparatively to a lot of scores that I'll talk about today. But I really quickly want to mention the Gene Moore score to Carnival of Souls. 
Oh yay! Yeah, I uh, I I cannot believe that I picked up a copy of this on like a weird website. It was like a distro center. I got it. It's a double LP ray. I got it for eleven dollars. I could not believe it's just a standard black pressing, but I could not believe I got it for eleven dollars. And what this, what I love about the score to this music is obvious or mute movie is obviously the the main character, and this is a church organist, and that's a huge part of the movie. But all of the score is organ music, and it's some of the most hauntingly beautiful music I've ever heard. And I find myself a lot of times just putting that score on the turntable when I'm working or doing things because it puts my mind in this weird state that I know that movie is really uncomfortable and scary, but there's also like a comforting thing about Carnival of Souls to me because our lead character in that film is so just like out of place and she doesn't feel like, feels she doesn't feel like she belongs. And the music in that really kind of adds to that feeling. And I feel like someone who, like myself, who has kind of felt like I, I've never really belonged anywhere. Like, I, I you know, I've, I make friends and stuff, but I have a weird personality, if most of you can't tell. And I felt like an outcast most of my life. That movie really resonates with me. And something about just that organ music and that score really accompanies that feeling. And I find myself revisiting that one a lot. And I still, I'll say it one more time, I can't believe I got that for like $11 dollars yeah that is insane yeah and it's a beautiful the the it's like a really old school press um but it's it's incredible i love the music and shout out utah for uh for her carvey's only movie <laughs> is that really his only movie that was his only movie he made carnival of souls and he never made anything else which is really unfortunate because what a movie hmm, i do love carnival of souls and i've been to the saltaire numerous times i'm very jealous uh, of you that you've been able to visit that and see it up close i hope to one day be able to come out there and visit you and you can take me to see it we'll have to plan like for you to come when there's like a good show because now that that place is just a concert venue so i actually i have fun fact i actually saw um i've seen i've seen three different i've been there three times no four times the first time I saw Chevelle, the second time I saw Deftones, the third time I saw Brand New, and then the last time I saw Queens of the Stone Age. What a what a group of bands that you saw. That's incredible. Yeah, seeing Brand New at that at the Saltaire was really surreal. That that's really awesome. But yeah, Carnival of Souls, that is uh that is my next pick. So what would be your next pick? I feel like the next pick I'm going to do, I feel like I'm trying to traverse like a, um, like a story. I'm trying to tell a story. I started out with like Titanic. Then I picked up some, some Hans Simmer. And then one of my all time favorite scores that it baffles my mind that it doesn't exist on vinyl. Um, somebody needs to get, you know, get off the chair and go freaking press James Newton Howard's The Village. Yeah, oh, dude, I'm so glad you brought this one up because I feel like the Village score is really underrated. It's amazing, and I remember being, what was it, 14, 15 when that movie came out, and I was just, like, mind-blown by it, by it, and I was just, I couldn't believe how good the music was. I am, I am one of the people that, like, I'm one of the weird few that actually really loves that movie. I also really love that movie, so we can, we can talk about that together. <laughs> but I remember the fit that like the music being such a standout for me. And I remember like that was one of those that we wore that CD to death with my brother because the village is such a beautiful score. 
um, all the string arrangements that were done. James Newton Howard is just a genius at what he does. And I do distinctly remember us buying that CD and playing it to death with my brother. And yeah, like it, it's to me, it's a crime that it doesn't exist on vinyl. Yeah, that is. I, I can't believe that it doesn't exist on vinyl, but I'm sure that there's another one you're going to bring up in this episode, if I can remember correctly, that has also not been pressed on vinyl that might be one of your favorite scores of all time. And yeah, there's a disservice that's been done to several movies that have not been yeah, pressed I'm on gonna vinyl. Yeah, I'm going to burst a blood vessel. Yeah, well, eventually, Ray, someone is going to hear your your battle cry, and they're gonna they're gonna press that for you. Be single handedly thank for it. Yes, you'll everyone out in the in in the ether will say, Ray, thank you for bugging these people so much. We appreciate you. So if if anything, like you know, like and subscribe and spread the word and tell everybody about our podcast so we become famous enough so we have any saying in the zeitgeist of film scores. Yes, a hundred percent. We want we want. We want to be able to make these choices. We want to be the ones in charge of making sure that these scores get pressed on vinyl. <laughs> we want to be the gatekeepers of vinyl pressing. <laughs> I 100% want to be the gatekeeper of vinyl pressing. Damn it. Um, but my my next, my next score, Ray, this will make you laugh a little bit, I think. Uh, but I have to bring this one up. Because it holds a sentimental place in my heart. I've talked about this movie a lot and like what it means to me, but the score means equally as much. And that is the Michael Giacchino score for Up. Oh, no, that makes 100% sense. And you want to talk about one of the most beautiful pressings that's ever been made of a record? Oh, could not have been could not have been crafted better. I feel like any time that someone like says sky blue or something that it never really hits that hallmark, but they nailed it. I'm kind of bummed that they haven't done a Toy Story pressing like that. Yeah, that is weird that there is no Toy Story pressing. Yeah, I have Toy Story from the Disney Corporation, the the picture disc vinyl. But I've talked about it before. Uh, this movie came out probably like a year or so after my grandpa passed away and I went and saw it with my grandma and the character in the film reminded me so much of my grandpa when I watched it and my grandmother was just like a wreck when we watched this movie and the score to this like ever since that very first time I watched that that married life theme and just the way that it plays throughout the film and the way Giacchino uses that little bit of music throughout multiple songs in the movie is just so beautiful. It is like animated or not. It's one of the best scores ever written for a film. And it's one that I find myself constantly revisiting. And it puts me, despite the somber tones of elements of the film, it really does put me in a good place when I listen to it. And I think it's a perfect accompaniment for that. And I think the vinyl pressing is beautiful. And we've talked about it enough times on this podcast for you guys all to know how I feel about the movie. And we both love Michael Giacchino. And I think that he is another one that you could put in the pinnacle of great composers. I think he's just amazing. The work that he's done throughout his career is incredible. And to see how much work he's done for Disney is, is amazing. But yeah, Up. I love that score. I think it's beautiful. Up is great. And I'm, so, I'm, I'm forever going to be upset at my for missing out on that pressing to be completely honest with you yeah it's it's one of my favorite uh it's one of my favorite press or one of my favorite pressings that i have for like a, a film score i think it matches totally and it's just so beautiful and then if we're mentioning michael giacchino the other score i love is ratatouille i think they're both beautiful scores and i'm lucky enough to have pressings of both of them well, for me, for the next one, uh, again, traversing this 
the story. I remember at one point in my life, I was so, um, you know, for me, film scores were these like classical arrangements, uh, motifs and themes. And then I heard this score and I, I, up to that point, I didn't realize that scores could be so much more than just, you know, classically inclined music. Um, and you you might laugh or you might appreciate this 100%. And I, when I first heard the score for Tron Legacy by Daft Punk. One of the best scores ever. It changed my perspective on what a score could be. Agree completely. It, it showed me that a score could be fun. It doesn't have, and it could be dancey, but it could also be epic. And I just, I feel like that movie, I love that movie. I'm an apologist for it. I think that movie is great. It is great. That movie is great. Uh, like, I think the the issue that people have with that movie is, and I don't think a lot of people remember, but the original Tron is boring. <laughs> like, there are moments in it. It's a cool world-building movie, but it's boring. Tron Legacy is exciting, and it's fun, and it's entertaining. My biggest qualm with Tron Legacy is the CGI Jeff Bridges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that was... But yeah, the, was rough. But the Daft Punk score is amazing. I can't believe I don't own a copy of this on vinyl. I need to get one. I have two copies. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, uh, yeah, I've seen some really cool pressings for it. It's a movie that I always love revisiting because it's so much fun. I love the darkness of the world. It's just so unlike anything else in that score. I love when Daft Punk shows up in the movie, too. Yeah, their cameo is awesome. And, and that's the thing about that score. I feel like that score completely rewired me on what a score could be because up until then i was like oh a score needs to have um piano arrangements and string arrangements and these classical orchestras and don't get me wrong those things are still important but daft punk came in and showed us hey what if we throw in some keyboards and some electronic and some dance tracks and it works so well that it made me understand that you can venture so much like further out in the realm of like film music that you don't have to just use the same formula. I completely agree with that. I, I think that you can really kind of step outside the box and make something unique. And I think that, you know, there's a testament to that too. in the fact that um, when you look at something like the, someone we both really love, like John Carpenter, John Carpenter is proof that you don't need string arrangements for a, for a score that you can just rely heavily on synth and you can, um, you can, you know, do something a little bit more unconventional that I feel like works out normally to your advantage because it creates an entirely other aesthetic. And I, I love the Tron Legacy score. It's amazing. Love it too. Um, I actually have just like your standard black copy that I bought way back when. And um, it glows in the dark. Like the cover itself glows in the dark. Um, so I thought it was cool and I kept it and then Mondo did this beautiful pressing of it and I was like, well, I gotta have that. I, I actually just saw there's a there's a uh, really cool looking pressing that Target put out. Yeah, so I, I, I have that one, but it's just black instead of colored. Oh yeah, the one that Target has right now is like a translucent blue and a clear. Oh yeah, so I, I have that exact same copy except black. It's just the standard black. That's really cool. I might, it's only 25 bucks. I might be picking up this uh, light blue copy. <laughs> because <laughs> i i need it and like the if and the mondo one like obviously i advocate for that mondo pressing because it's 
gorgeous, but it, it, it might cost you a pretty penny. It is Mondale. And well, it's out of stock, and it, they're currently uh, – it looks like they're right now on eBay charging about $180 for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, don't. Yeah, I'm not gonna pay. I'm not paying 180 dollars, but it's an amazing score. Yeah, Tron Legacy, it's amazing, and it totally changed my perspective on what a score can be. Yeah, I'm so glad that you said that because I completely agree, and I love your list so far. You have really covered a variety of scores, and I can't wait to hear what else you have on your list. Well, what do you got next? I want to hear what you got too. Well, I, you know, there's a ton of things I have on this list, and I'm, I've got a few big ones that I want to mention towards the end, but I want to talk about a film score that, like, when you talk about music that accompanies a movie so perfectly that it just kind of, like, moves you to tears when you just hear the music, and I can't listen to this score without tearing up every time, and that's the Nicholas Bertel score to If Beale Street Can Talk. I need to watch that movie. Uh, so the movie's beautiful. Obviously, I'm a big Barry Jenkins fan. I actually like this movie more than I like uh, Moonlight. I think that it's I think that it's an improvement on everything that he did in Moonlight, but the Bertel score to this is this beautiful sort of like stripped-down jazz music, very heavily on the saxophone and the trumpet, and there's this one one song in particular on the soundtrack that every time um, every time it plays, I just like well up because you know obviously this movie. Uh, it's this it's called agape and what the scene in the movie is like a really tender passionate scene between our two lead characters and obviously the movie is is looking at racism in a time period where uh the the lead man in this movie is accused of something that he didn't do and is going to jail for it and it's these two people trying to figure out if they can make their relationships work despite all of that and so there's a lot of flashback moments that are tender romantic moments that the score just accompanies those so brilliantly and perfectly and i cannot listen to this score without tearing up like i i put it on my turntable my, my i just have a standard black pressing it's really beautiful though the gatefold of it's beautiful they t they spent a lot of time making the the lp but it's just such such a beautiful record i could listen to the music without the context of the movie and still love it just as much but yeah uh Nicholas Bertel, another incredible composer that I feel like doesn't get enough love. I need to check out this movie, too, because um, I heard nothing but good things about it as well. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, I, and like I said, Nicholas Bertel, great composer. I feel like he doesn't really get enough credit either, um, especially with the, uh, the, like, you know, he worked on Moonlight as well. Uh, but he's just he's just got a knack for great, uh, great music. He also did music for 12 Years a Slave. Um, and, uh, most recently he did, uh, he did music for She Said that came out last year. And then he did the score for Don't Look Up the year before. Oh, Don't Look Up was great. Yeah. I still have not seen that movie. So, um, the score, I, I liked the movie. It was a cool movie, but the score was great. Yep. So that was him as well. So he, he's got chops and that is a beautiful score. And I really wanted to mention it. So for me, um, for the next one, I'm sticking with the same theme um of of daft punk and this is one of those situations where like like i said daft punk kind of altered my perspective on what could be construed as a score so then i started seeking out more weird stuff um and i came across the little score that you have probably heard of um it's by a french duo it's a, by a french 
synthwave duo named Lamatos, and they did the score for Turbo Kid. Yes, the Turbo Kid score rules. And that that was one of those situations where I realized that like, because up until this point, I feel like I was listening to like like names, you know, John Williams, James Horner. Um, you know, James Newton Howard, Hans Zimmer. Even Daft Punk was a like you know, household name, but these like two dudes from Canada that just are DJs that do synthwave music just decided to score this little indie film. It made me kind of realize like, oh, so like being a composer is not just like this, you know, guy wearing a a suit and a tuxedo on stage, and it can be just like two dudes, you know. And I feel like this is the first time that I heard that. And I was like, okay, so we can, you can give two regular Joes from down the street a keyboard and some samples, and they can create some awesome, fun soundscapes for some of these films. And I feel like Lamatos was one of the first um, artists that really showed me that that could be done and that you can add a lot of personality through that like whole retro synth movement that, um, kind of was kicked re reignited by um, Michael Stein and Kyle Dixon with the Stranger Things scores, but but I feel like artists like Lamatos took that and just like elevated. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I th I think especially mentioning those guys from Stranger Things, like this whole synth wave, um, in in popular culture and in film is really kind of taken. Uh, taking a precedent. I feel like I see it a lot more, even in like lower budget indie horror movies, I feel like I see a lot of reliance on it because it's very playful and it's very fun. And I think that it's uh, a really, a really great medium to, well, it's a, it's a really great uh, sound to attribute to a movie when you can have just that simple sound of a keyboard and maybe like a drum machine. And it's fun. And that Turbo Kid score is fun. Yeah, it really is. And I really, really enjoy it. It's a good time every time I play it. Um, Lamados has since gone and done some other work um, scoring other films, but that one just sticks out with me so much. No, that's awesome. Uh, that's a really good pick. I, I wish I could pick that one up on vinyl, but I'm sure it's like completely unavailable now and you can't get it anywhere. Um, no, it's a, it's available. Ooh, then I might be picking that up because I actually really love that score. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're just opening my mind up to more money I can spend. I'll send you the link. Oh, see, now you're just dipping into my wallet. I'm thrilled. Well, I'll go off that 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 keyboard sound and that that really uh, that really cool synthwave style. And this is a score that I know you love that I also don't own, believe it or not. And I don't know why I have not let myself pick this one up yet. But it's uh, Cliff Martinez's score to Drive. <laughs> that was gonna be my next pick. Yeah, that's cool that there's that overlap. Uh, and obviously, like you talk about this type of style and sound. I think Cliff Martinez nailed it on. And on top of the, like his score to the film, the actual soundtrack to the film is just amazing. Oh yeah. I love, I love the, the soundtrack for it. Um, the reason why I was going to bring that up and I'll piggyback off of yours. Um, the big reason why this one would have been my next pick after, after um, turbo kid is because, when I heard Turbo Kit, and even when I heard like um, Tron Legacy, I was like, oh, these are really fun, playful, dancey scores. But I feel like Cliff Martinez, he took the synth, you know, that, that synth playfulness and made it darker and more like ominous and more moody. 
which is something I hadn't heard of at the, at the time because I was so used to like, oh, if you're playing synth, you're either a horror movie or you're a very dancey type of movie. And this one is like, oh, you can take synths and make them these like really eerie and moody things. Yes, exactly. And it's, it's, it accompanies it perfectly. And like I said, I also like the, the, the original songs that are inco- incorporated too. I really love that song, A Real Hero. Yeah, and I remember when the movie first came out, I was playing that like on repeat over and over and over again. But it's great when the 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 soundtrack music plays in so well with Cliff Martinez's score. And I think when a movie can balance that really well, that it's effective. And this movie is such like a weird film anyways. Like I love that it's able to accomplish so much with such minimal dialogue, but the score really accompanies that. And I this is one I revisit quite often yeah i love that score so much i was so happy that i was able to pick up uh, a special edition of it that inveda did a few years back uh where they did like alternative artwork and stuff like that and it was awesome yeah and uh, i think cliff martinez also did the score to the neon demon which i really love then he did the neon demon he also did um only god forgives he's done a lot of cool stuff yeah, he uh, another another really cool composer who I feel like uh, we haven't seen the last of. Yeah, we we definitely aren't. Under, he also did um, Hotel Artemis, which was another cool score that he did. Um, yeah, no, I I enjoy Cliff Martinez a lot. Yeah, I I was just looking. I really like the cover that Mondo did for the Drive soundtrack. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, I feel like I don't know. I feel like at this point in time. So many artists started picking up on the synth thing that it almost became like, okay, it's the new norm to use these synths, but how can we keep it unique still? Mm-hmm. 100% agree with you. So, I mean, f- for that, I really loved what, um, and you know, I'm just going to toss him in because I actually love this man, and he has grown to become one of my favorites um, and that is Mr. Clint Mansell. Yeah, Clint Mansell. Which one are we talking about here? Oh, man, it's so hard to pick with Clint Mansell because I feel like I can pick the obvious choice, like Requiem for a Dream. But honestly, like when it comes to Clint Mansell, I would like to highlight the score for Moon. Yes. Oh, my God. Moon, what an amazing movie an amazing movie and the score is so that one was one of the first first ones that i heard where they were mixing all these electronic elements but still incorporating this like synth spacey aspect so you know you got the synths that almost create this cold feeling of being like in outer space but you still have some of the warm um compositions that he did of throwing more conventional instruments in it um and what I love about Clint Mansell is like, you know, there's there's the obvious answers, like I said, like um, Requiem for a Dream or even Black Swan, which are incredible scores. But I feel like Moon married so many of what make so much of what makes Clint Mansell great into this neatly packaged little indie darling film. Also, Moon was like one of my white whales for a long time until I finally was able to track a copy down. Yeah, that. Uh, who put that one out? It's just called Black Records. I, I've never heard of them. Um, they're just called Black Records. Oh, that's awesome. I, I another, uh, another score that I did not even know was out on vinyl, but I absolutely loved 
the atmosphere that that score created for the movie. It's impossible to find on vinyl, but I was um, that was it was one of my grails for a long time until I stumbled on into one copy on Discogs one day for, I mean it was expensive, but a lot cheaper than what it usually goes for. Oh yeah, and that isn't it cool whenever you can uh, score something that's like really hard to come by, but you manage to get it for a deal. And also just like a quick side note, he also. Clint Mansell also did The Fountain, and he worked with the post-rock band Mogwai, which was super cool. So, just a little quick side note. No, that's really awesome. No, I that's so cool that you were able to get a hold of that one, too, because that's a score that immediately comes to mind just because of how unique it was. And I remember when I watched the movie, that it really just like took me by surprise. So, what is your next one, though? Uh, so, my next one is going to come to no surprise to most people, and this is probably a score that I would put up there as one of my favorites that's been released in years, and that's the Arcade Fire score to her. Oh, there it is. Yeah, I uh, I know that I finally got Ray to watch this movie, but I'm sure you can attest to it, Ray. Probably one of the most just beautiful scores uh, ever made. It is such a beautiful score. It matches the mood of the film so perfectly it's uh i find myself i i don't know how you are i fall asleep to scores a lot and i find myself falling asleep to that score a lot it really just kind of mellows me out and puts me in a better place and it, it honestly conveys the feeling of the movie so perfectly and i love that the only pressing that i think they did of this score was the white variant with that cover i think it just matches perfectly yeah, no, I 100% agree that it matches it so perfectly. And I um, something I loved about that score, too, is that um, it's the fact that it's the arcade fire. You know, this isn't some, like, composer that, you know, sitting on their ivory tower. This is, like, a band that a lot of people probably really enjoy and didn't realize that they had the chops to, you know, compose such a beautiful arrangement for some of these tracks that they did yes a hundred percent um it's just like every now and again you get like a match made in heaven with uh with a score and you take a band like arcade fire who is so well known that people really love and you match them up with someone like spike jones and you just create something so unique and original and I, I just I could praise this score for an entire episode, but I love it. And even though white vinyl isn't normally my favorite, I I really like that the vinyl pressing of this is white. It's so perfect, and I love the the alternative cover. I know we've talked about the story behind the alternative cover before, but I love that. Yeah, I love it too. I think they did such a good job, and it's so simplistic, which matches the mood of the movie so so well. So, what is your next pick? Well, my next pick. Um, it's so hard to choose, man. Well, you can just mention the composer, and then you can talk about a few other things. I know there's some of them that you can't just narrow it down to one. So, I'm a big fan of this band called Zombie, and Zombie is like this prog rock, like instrumental prog band, with, and they like to mix some, like, um, horror elements. I mean, they got the name Zombie from Lucio Fulci's Zombie, and... Actually, no, I lied. They got their name from the Italian version of Dawn of the Dead. Um, one of the guys, and there is a duo, it's just two guys. One of the guys, his name is Steve Moore. And Steve Moore does a lot of synth work, like a lot of synths. And I've really became attached to the stuff that he does. 
uh, he's composed movies movies like VFW, Bliss, Mayhem. I think he did The Guest. I love well. The Guest. I love that. So score he too. did all of those. And Steve Morris is one that I've been really following along. Steve Moore has become one of those like I, I don't know if you ever you know I follow Steve Moore and his scores the way that I would follow a band. Sometimes I'll pick up some. Sometimes I'll pick up his scores without even having seen the movie. Um, but Steve Moore is it's a lot of synth stuff. I mean, if you if you're into the whole synth wave, the very dark, eerie, ominous synth music, then then he's definitely your guy. That's um, awesome. But yeah, Steve Moore is one that I just wanted to highlight real quick that you know, a lot of people may not know him, but he's definitely worth checking out. Yeah, 100%. That just that that list of films that you brought up uh, definitely sounds like it's worth going through his whole catalog. It sure is. And Zombie. I mean, they're more on the prog rock side of things, but they're still great. Well, you knew you weren't going to get through an entire episode uh, without me talking about R.I.P. Mr. Angelo Badalamenti. I, I was waiting for it. That's why I hadn't mentioned him. Yeah. Yeah, I if I was going to make a, a – like like what Ray talked about in his Dead Wax episode, if I was going to make a – like mount rushmore of of composers for myself battle Amenti is a hundred percent up there i think the work that he did with david lynch throughout his career is just bar none some of the most creative and unique uh scores that have ever been made there's this beautiful video online ray and i don't know if you've ever seen it before um but it's a it's battle Amenti talking about when he was making the theme song to twin peaks with david lynch and just hearing about how that song came to be and the way that um, it was it was crafted and how him and David worked together to get to that point. It's just such a beautiful story. And Battle of Menti has created so many amazing scores throughout his entire career. Uh, this, this I just actually found out a couple of years ago and it made me smile, but Battle of Menti did the score to Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Oh really? Which I don't think a lot. Yeah, which I don't think a lot of people know. But it's an incredible score, and this one might surprise a lot of people out there. But with the holiday season ending, Battle of Menti did the score to National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Are you serious? Yeah. So he he's kind of had his hand over all different kinds of things throughout his career, and I just think he's a a beautiful human being. I'm so sad that he passed recently. But, like, I find myself going back and visiting a lot of his stuff. And he also did a project with David Lynch called The Thought Gang that is, like, really amazing music with a lot of spoken word poetry from David and Angelo Badalamenti. And it's just what a creative duo that just worked together so perfectly. I love all of his scores. Uh, one of, I think, the sleeper scores that I, Ray and I discussed that I hope gets pressed on vinyl at some point is The Straight Story. Oh, yeah. That would be really cool to get. It's such a beautiful score. I'm hoping that with uh, with the pairing that um, Criterion's done with Disney that they'll put The Straight Story out on Blu-ray because there isn't like a great Blu-ray release of it. And I hope that that pushes for uh, uh, some sort of record label to want to put that score out on vinyl. But I love Battle of Menti. He is just top tier for me, and I had to mention him. Well, while we're talking about composers that um, we are saddened that they are no longer with us, one that immediately came to mind that gone too soon is Johan Johansson. And I agree with you. And honestly, I know we were talking about this off podcast when we were talking together, Ray. But uh, 
Johann would probably be up there on one of my greatest composers of all time list, even though his his body of work isn't as large as some other composers. I still think the impact that he had while he was here is is really great. He still has some really cool, like, just solo non-film stuff, like that album Orphe he did is really great. Um, obviously, he's done some cool stuff like Prisoners, Theory of Everything, Sicario, Arrival, obviously Mandy. Um, but one that came out that not a lot of people talked about, and it makes me a little sad that not a lot of people talked about, was the score that he, it's like a, it came out after his death. But not a lot of people know this. Johan Johansson directed and scored a film. Oh, seriously? I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, it's a very experimental film called Last and First Man. I've never even heard of it. And it's like a... Um, the movie is really weird because all the movie is, is it's like these cinematic shots of of these like... Uh, I don't even know what to call it, this type of architecture. It's like really blocky type of architecture that they have of these like really incredible buildings out in like, I believe it's Croatia and Bosnia. Um, and all it really is, is just like all these cinematic shots of all these buildings. And there's a narration playing on the background about like the civilization collapsing. And here I'll read you the, the it's easier if I just read the synopsis. It says, um, the synopsis of it, just real quick, is two billion years in the future, humanity finds itself on the verge of extinction. Almost all that is left in the world are lone and surreal monuments beaming their messages into the wilderness. And it's seriously just like pictures, like these cinematic shots of all these, you know, abandoned buildings. And actually, Tilda Swinton is the narrator. Oh my God, I'm watching this very soon. I love Tilda. So Tilda is the one narrating as if she was like the one sending the message from a different world into ours about the fall of humanity and how we can prevent it. But the actual cinematography, it's seriously just these buildings. And you just get these like panning shots of these buildings. So Johan Johansson directed it and he composed the score for it. So yeah, like it's it's really cool. Um, I wish I could find what kind of architecture they used because they there's a very specific type of architecture that they feature but it was mostly shot you know and like that like you know where the former capital where the former yugoslavia used to be so he goes to bosnia croatia montenegro and all these cool places to film these really beautiful buildings and just till a swim narrating over it and then beautiful music attached to it that sounds that sounds absolutely incredible. I want to watch this like ASAP. So yeah, it's it's a very experimental film, but I highly recommend it. But Johan Johansson was one that left us way too soon, and I wish we would have gotten more from him. But we what we do have is pitch perfect. Also, I completely agree. Fun little tidbit about Johan Johansson before we move on. Um, did you ever watch the movie Mother? Uh, yes. Okay, so Mother. I don't know if you've noticed the lack of score. So, Johan Johansson was scheduled, was actually booked to score that movie. And he was given the movie to score it, and he watched the film, and we, he went back to Darren Aronofsky, and he told him, don't score this movie. No way. He told, like, Johan Johansson told him, don't score this movie. It'll be much more impactful without music. That's insane. 
I love that though. Oh, we miss you, Johan. A hundred percent, we do. Well, I want to talk about next another composer that I absolutely adore, and this should be no surprise to anyone who uh, knows me, and that is John Bryan, who composed the score to Synecdoche, New York, and several other amazing scores. I do love the Paranorman score. Yeah, so so John Bryan scored Synecdoche, New York, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Punch Drunk Love, Paranorman, and also Step Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so do i uh but the synecdoche new york score is like one of my favorite scores ever in the history of all of cinema uh it's beautiful it's gut-wrenching it's incredible a lot of piano work uh john bryan also has like a solo career that he released i think like one record in the early 2000s uh, but he is such a talented composer and he's done some kind of funnier things later on in his career like he scored delivery man with Vince Vaughn but like there's a lot of movies in his career that have really resonated with me and that score to Synecdoche New York is so beautiful I got an amazing copy of it on vinyl I've praised that movie a ton because of just like how it tackles the themes of depression and loneliness and isolation and it's uh it's just one of my favorites uh ever put out on vinyl and 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 just one of my favorite scores period that i find myself listening to over and over again so just really quickly wanted to mention mr john bryan well in an effort to continue onward i'm you know there's there is obviously some of those scores that you just they just hit you on a different level and for me one of them is john murphy an underworld score for sunshine yes i said it I knew it was coming, and that's why I mentioned it earlier. <laughs> I was like, there's going to be one that Ray's going to bring up that he's really mad isn't on vinyl. I'm I'm upset about it. It keeps me up at night. I can imagine. Well, I think the score is incredible, so I'm right there with you. The score is incredible, and this is another one of those scores that, like, it has a beautiful mixture of, like, synths and electronics but it also has a really beautiful orchestra aspect to it um yeah and I, I don't even know how to begin to describe how this movie isn't like first of all how the score isn't just, i mean the score is so good that han simmer han simmer took one of the tracks adagio in d minor and used that on on the film for Wonder Woman. That isn't that is you told me that fact and I love it so much. The fact that Hans Zimmer used somebody else's work in the score. <laughs> like <laughs> it's freaking Hans Zimmer and he's using somebody else's work. Um, I don't know if it, that was a choice done by Hans Zimmer or by the director of the film, but I mean, it's been used. It's well known. It's beautiful composition. Like why isn't this on vinyl? But Regardless of it being on vinyl, it is such a beautiful score that I could just listen to. You know, the some of the cues like Kaneta's death, like, oh, that track hits me so hard. Or Kappa's jump, it's like, some of those tracks just hit me so hard. They really do, and it's a beautiful score, and I would pick that one up on vinyl if anyone has the bravery to press it. Yeah, I, I challenge, I challenge anybody to press it. Um, I yeah I really agree with you I think that it's a great score it's one that I think about a lot even though like I wasn't the biggest fan of the movie I liked the first half of it 
I still think about the score all the time, and I have put it on a few times and listened to it because of how much I enjoyed it. And yeah, like I said so much about that score, but yeah, John Murphy, Underworld's Sunshine. So I don't have a whole lot more that I want to mention, but I have one more that I really wanted to mention big time. And obviously, Ray, you knew it was coming. I saved the best for last. I'm talking Johnny Greenwood. Oh, there it is. Uh, Johnny Greenwood is probably my favorite composer, uh, whether it be like of the classics or anything. I know that he's relatively newer, but his string arrangements are some of the best I've ever heard. The Phantom Thread score is probably one of the most beautiful scores I've ever heard. I listen to it weekly. It's a score that never leaves my rotation. Also, the score to Spencer is beautiful. Ray, you're very familiar with his score for You Were Never Really Here, which is like a very different score than what Johnny Greenwood normally puts out. Um, but I just love his work. I love seeing where he's going with his career. And he's just an amazing human being that just works on some really incredible films. And I wanted to mention his work, even though you guys are probably sick of hearing me drop his name. <laughs> so Johnny Greenwood. All right. So you ready for me to close out mine? Yes. Close it out. So this is potentially my favorite film score. I can't wait to hear. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Um, I think you know what it is. I love this score so, so much. It is one of my all-time favorite movies, and that is the score done by Benjamin Walfish and Hans Zimmer for Blade Runner 2049. One of the best scores ever made. I 100% agree with you. I think if I was making a list, it would be in my top five. Oh, yeah. I love it. Seawall is probably one of my all-time favorite cues in any movie. It sent chills up my spine when I was watching the movie. The, the, score, the cue of the, of the song alone. Well, and then the whole fight that takes place with that song in the background, it adds so much tension. It 100% does. I completely agree. It's just, it's such a great score that accompanies that movie so perfectly. I feel like every track on it is just so like ethereal and otherworldly. And it just feels like music from a different dimension. Which is crazy to me because Hans Zimmer is known for these very like grandiose, you know, type of film music, but he keeps it so subtle. Like he knew with that film, he needed subtlety. Yes. And the subtleness of it really adds to the overall punch of the movie. And I think it really makes the movie feel very mystical and different. And I'm really glad you brought that one up because I, too, love the Blade Runner 2049 score. I'm just jealous that I'll probably never get a Mondo pressing unless I pay hundreds of dollars. <laughs> Let's hope not. I mean, Mondo has been doing some really cool stuff recently, so hopefully there's a repress on the way. Yes, I completely agree. I If there is a repress, I'm pulling the trigger on it immediately. So, yeah, Blade Runner 2049, one of the greats. I love it. Well, that was a really good list, Ray. Um, I I appreciate all of the input that you had. I love that you mentioned so many scores that are important to you. And I think what I like the most is just kind of like the stories attached to the scores. And I know this has been an episode that you've been very much looking forward to doing. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. So, that is our episode about film scores. So, Ray, I think we've got some exciting news that we want to share to the people at home, don't we? Oh, we sure do. We sure do. 
Yeah, so Ray and I have been doing this podcast for a while now, and obviously we have a format that we use over and over and over again. But uh, we are, after uh, I was talking to this person, they they agreed to come on the podcast, and they're going to talk about their movie that they directed. And that is the director, Jonathan Quartas, and his brother, Michael, who was the cinematographer. They are going to come on and discuss the film, My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To, which I've praised over and over again because I love it so much. And they're going to come on the podcast and talk about the making of the movie, give us a little bit of background on why they got into film, their their influences. We're just going to have a lot of fun asking them questions. And Ray, I am very excited about this. As am I. I actually have been very much looking forward to this. Um, it'll just be excited to talk to someone that's done the work, who's done the deed, that knows exactly what it takes. And it also someone that, you know, the, the film seems to have really good reviews from critics, too. Uh, so I'm excited. I'm really excited to to pick their brains a little bit here. A hundred percent. And I would recommend all of our listeners out there before the episode, you can watch my heart can't beat unless you tell it to on shutter peacock or Tubi right now. They're available on all of those platforms. Find one of them, watch it before the episode because it is an amazing film. You will not be disappointed. John is such a talented filmmaker. He's someone I really respect. He's got great taste in movies. And I really look forward to not only talking to him about his movie, but to talk about like the process and what kind of things influenced him to make a movie in this genre. And, you know, there's, there's a thousand questions that I have to mind, but it, it's a really amazing film and he's a really wonderful person. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. As am I. So make sure to tune in next week for a very special episode that we'll be having of the of the film monsters podcast yes i'm very excited and you can always follow us over on instagram at the film monsters podcast where we'll have updates about the episode like i said at the beginning ray and i'll do our little uh, oscar prediction check marks and we'll throw it up there and you guys can tell us if you think we're really off base or if if we're correct um but yeah i'm really looking forward to it i think 2023 has been a great year to start off with a podcast. I've really been happy with it. And I just think we only have to go up from here. That's right. So I'm excited to see what comes next. A hundred percent. So, uh, Ray, did you want to mention anything that you watched this week? Um, is there something you watch? Cause I can't really think of anything at the moment. I've watched a ton of things this week, uh, and I was trying to get caught up on Oscar movies, and I watched some of the bigger name films, but I really quickly just wanted to mention, um, because I barely got talked about last year, but I watched the movie The Eternal Daughter starring Tilda Swinton. Oh, I haven't heard of this one. And it was put out by A24, and what's cool is, I love Suspiria 2018, I've talked about it a million times, and Tilda Swinton plays three characters in this, but in The Eternal Daughter, Tilda Swinton plays two characters... (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it's a really simple story it's about a a woman who's a director she goes to this hotel with her mom for her birthday for the mother's birthday and the two of them are just kind of spending time together and unraveling family secrets and it's just a really beautiful quiet character study that i i wish ray and i've talked about this a few times a24 trust your movies just like trust them 
like market them more frequently we we want that we want to ease easy access to these movies more people need to see them like at least drop them on like a streaming service that people actually have exactly like even like apple tv plus like what a dumb streaming service <laughs> yep I, and I know, sorry, Apple, if you heard me, but like, I, I don't need, uh, I don't need 75,000 streaming services. I only want like two or three, just condense them for me. Yeah. Do some like crossover rights or something. I don't know. So yeah, I just really quickly wanted to mention that movie. Yeah. I've been, I've been recently, I've just honestly, if I'm being honest, I've been more on like watching, just watching comfort TV lately. Well, well, let me ask you, did you, did you get, I don't know if it's been released, but has the second episode of Last of Us come out yet? It was glorious, and yes, it was. That's what, I figured, I figured you'd watched it. I've been wanting to get on watching it, and I'm excited to see it, because I've heard it's amazing. It is amazing. It, they've done a really good job. Well, I'm going to check it out so that we can talk about it in the near future, but that is the episode, everyone, and like I said, we're going to be interviewing John next week. Uh, we're really looking forward to it. You can find him on Instagram. He is just a wonderful guy. We're excited to talk to him, and we appreciate you all for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Have a have a good night, everyone, and go buy Triangle of Sadness from the Criterion Collection. No! <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye.